gospel. We're in John 16. I'm sorry, 17. I've been saying that so long. John 17. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word, beginning at the first verse. This is the word of God. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Thus far, God's word. Let us pray. O glorious God, mighty God, we have sung of your goodness to us. We have celebrated your grace. We have rejoiced in the forgiveness that we have in your Son. Father, as we continue with these themes, with the preaching of the word, as we come now to this holy place where we, as your people, are given the privilege and the blessing and the honor of hearing our blessed Redeemer pray, as we are given a front row seat into this intimate conversation that our Savior and your beloved Son had with you as he prayed for himself, as he prayed for the apostles, and as he even prayed for us. Lord, illumine your word and bless the preaching of your word by your Holy Spirit, as well as our hearing of it, that it would find fertile soil within us and take root, bearing fruit upwards for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Jesus gave us prayer. He made the way for us to pray. Uh, he gave us a model prayer that we have used earlier. But here we have a prayer where we hear Christ's prayer. This is not a prayer that we should pray. Even as Jesus would not pray uh, the disciples' prayer, as we might call it, what we prayed earlier, because in it there's a confession of sin, and that's not something the Lord Jesus Christ needs to do. But in this prayer, there are things that are very much about him. But indeed, as we will see, as we make our way through this 17th chapter, there are certainly lessons. But more than anything, there's a tremendous encouragement for us who have our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus alone could pray this prayer. He did so as our high priest. This prayer was after a sermon. It was also... A prayer after a sacrament. John does not record that, but we know from the other Gospels. So it was a prayer after a sacrament. And those who heard Jesus' sermon were then permitted to hear him pray for them. What a remarkable occurrence. This was also a family prayer. Jesus speaking to his Father, who is also the Father of all those who believe. And this is also a, a parting prayer. Jesus would be arrested in just a matter of hours, and led away to a cross. There he should make sacrifice for us. These are some of the opening observations that Matthew Henry makes as he begins commenting on the 17th chapter of John. While these are significant observations, there is something more unfolding here. 
God established the Day of Atonement. He gave this to the people of old after he brought them out of the house of bondage and delivered them and bringing them into the land. And in preparation for that, he gave them instructions for a tabernacle, a place where that they would meet with him. It's the, the mobile mountain, as it were. As they leave Sinai, where they met with God, God goes with them in the tabernacle, wherever they go, and ultimately into the land that was promised to Abraham for him and his descendants. In that tabernacle, there was a remarkable event that took place one time a year, the Day of Atonement. We read about it in Leviticus 16. It took place in the tabernacle, later it took place in the temple. And it was there that a sacrifice was brought in once per year for the sins of the people. In addition to the sacrifices offered day by day, on the occasion of a sin, a worshiper could come bringing uh, the appointed and appropriate animal for sacrifice. But this day was of chief importance. The Day of Atonement was central in the life of the nation. We know from the records of uh, matters regarding the way that it was uh, dealt with that there was tremendous sobriety to go into the house of God, into the Holy of Holies. God had made it clear through Moses that to come in without blood, to come in at a time not appointed, to come in as one not appointed to come, not being the high priest, would result in death. So one can imagine the high priest preparing. What we know from the record of Jewish history is that the high priest made great preparations for the day. The day before, in the evening, he would spend time in ceremonial washings, those very things that God gave instruction to Moses. Then he would spend the night engaged in prayer. There would be those who would stay with him, attend to him, to help him stay awake through the night hours that he would engage in prayer. The high priest's prayers of intercession then were lay in ever-widening circles. First, he would pray for himself. Then he would pray for those who ministered with him. And then he would pray for the people. This was the labor that a priest was set apart to do, to make intercessions on the behalf of the people to God, to pray for them and then also be the one who then would minister to them as God, a mediator between God and man. What lies behind before what lies before us is the prayer then of our great high priest, the great high priest. And what we see that Jesus' prayer follows this same pattern, ever widening circles. He begins praying for himself, verses one through five. Then he prays for the disciples to whom the ministry of the church, the establishment of the church in that first generation was entrusted. Verses six through nineteen. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for the church as a whole. He prayed for you, believer. Jesus prayed for each one of us in that night or in that night hour. What a remarkable thing. We also know that Jesus continues to pray for us. He continues to make intercession for us. Even now, at the right hand of the Father, our worship is accepted in Christ as he, as our high priest, makes intercession for us. The connection to the great work of Jesus that he's about to do then in its connection to the Day of Atonement should not escape our notice. Jesus, as our high priest, is about to be sacrificed. His humanity sacrificed on the altar of his deity, and he will take his blood 
and he will carry it into the Holy of Holies. Not one made with hands, but that was but a copy of the actual which was in heaven, and he will carry his blood. He has done it now. Not the blood of bulls or goats or lambs or rams, but his own blood to sprinkle it on the mercy seat before the Father, where it ever now cries out, Father, forgive them. We're going to use three main headings this morning. First, one of the petitions of Christ, Father, glorify your Son. And secondly, we'll look at the Father's gifts that are given to the Son that Jesus names here, three of them. And then we'll consider the matter of eternal life, where this is eternal life. We'll look at what that is. And then we'll conclude with salvation is for God's glory. So we begin with the first point, Father, glorify your Son. We find ourselves in a marvelous position. We, we hear the words of one person of the Trinity speaking to another person of the Trinity. We hear the Son speaking to his Father. Jesus has prayed many times. The, the authors of the Gospels record how that he would spend the night in prayer, or they would rise up early before it was daylight to go apart to pray to his Father. One of the hallmarks of Christ's life as man was prayerfulness, regular, consistent, laborious praying to the Father. And here we have this one example of his prayers, this one record of what he prayed. Here we have what is rightly called the Lord's Prayer, our Lord's Prayer. A prayer that is typically called the Lord's Prayer is in reality, as I said earlier, the disciples' prayer. J.C. Ryle reflects on this passage, quoting, There are sentences, words, expressions in the 26 verses of this chapter which no one probably has ever unfolded completely. We have not the minds to do it, but there are great truths which stand out clearly and plainly, and we should do well to direct our best attention. Close quote. Martin Luther says of this prayer, this is truly beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours them all out. It is so rich, so deep, so wide, no one can fathom it. Close quote. Jesus is praying on the very threshold of the greatest event in history. His hour has come. He begins, Father, the hour has come. He's been speaking of this hour with the disciples. It was not yet his hour, and now it has become his hour. And it's that season leading up to it, and all the events surrounding and then ultimately his going to the cross. And Jesus uses this language to address the Father. The hour has come. It is an event that will open the way to God Almighty so the sinners can draw near to Christ and call God Father. It is the event that will result in the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies being rent as our access as sinners is opened by Christ through his sacrifice. Richard Phillips notes in commenting that this prayer is a reverent prayer, it's a reasoned prayer in which Jesus expresses his readiness to obey his Father. It's a believing prayer. We might have stumbled at that, but we should not. Jesus is a man, and he lived his life in full reliance on the Father. He lived by faith that the promises that God had given to him as our mediator 
would be yes and amen because God cannot lie. And so it's a believing prayer. Jesus asked the Father in this prayer to do that which he promised, which is the very thing that we should be informed to do. That we take up God's promises from the Scripture, you know, praying with our Bibles open. And as we see the promises of God, pray them. This is what Jesus does. The promises of the Father is made to him as the Redeemer. And so we see that it is a reverent prayer, a reasoned prayer. And then he expresses his readiness to obey, a believing prayer. And finally, it is a prayer that you and I can rely on. So notes Rick Phillips. These petitions continue to reverberate and resonate across the centuries of the gospel age in which we live. And in them is the seal of certainty for our salvation. Here is a seal of certainty for our salvation. Indeed, for all who come to Jesus by faith. As he prays for us. The first request then of Jesus to his Father is to glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. Consider this request. Jesus is asking the Father to glorify him through the death on the cross. It's not what we'd ordinarily think, but he says, The hour has come. Now, Father, glorify your Son, that he may glorify you. It is in the cross. It is at the cross that this takes place. The glory, glory is something that's frequently found throughout John's gospel. Something over 40 times, either glory or glorify, is used by John. I remind you, it's the opening of John's gospel in the preamble. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We must be careful, then, that we do not think of glory in the same way that the world does. What is it the world glories in? Power, prestige, position, money. These are the things that the world glories in. Here we find that Jesus' glory was in his humility and in his service, in his sacrifice of himself for his people. And if we do not see that, we will miss the majesty of Jesus Christ and what he's done. John communicates glory, not as man's glory, but as divine glory, glory that is seen in humiliation and service. This is what Jesus said, and both Matthew and Mark record it, quoting Jesus from Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served. That's not what he was here for. Jesus goes on, but to serve and to give his life is a ransom for many. This is the glory of, the, of God in his Son. Jesus displayed, or Jesus' greatest display of humility was in his sacrifice himself on the cross. When he died in your place, when he went with your sins and hung, and he received in him the wrath of God, the justice of God that you and I deserve. Redeemed sinners, do you recognize that it was a shame to be put on a cross? Cursed is anyone who hangs upon the tree, we're told in the Old Testament. And yet, it was his glory to hang in the place of his people. No greater sacrifice has anyone done. That's what Jesus said. The love for his brother, that he laid down his life 
for his sheep. Here we see the good shepherd. And do we not rejoice in this? Do we not glory in the cross? This is not the most glorious event of all humanity. It's it's the wonderful paradox of the gospel that in shame and suffering and crucifixion and what the world would deem humiliation, remember the people mocked him. They shook their heads at him. They sped upon him. And in it, God demonstrated his great power. The glory of Christ as a sacrifice for sinners. It is there that we have been set free from the bondage of the devil. It was there that the great exodus then was open, that we can return to the Father, that we can come back into his presence and commune and fellowship with him with a greater intimacy, even than Adam knew in the garden before he sinned. Here we see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, the beauty of his humility and service to save us. Oh, people of God, see your Lord as most precious, most glorious, even in his suffering. What's our response? Well, our, our hearts should sing, glory, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God for the Lamb of God who gave himself to save such a wretch as I am. This, uh, this event when man murdered the Son of God is an event that all who believe in glory in. So precisely what is spoken by Jesus back in John 12, if you turn back just a couple of pages, John 12, 23. Notice what Jesus says here. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come and the Son of Man, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came into the world, but I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What's Jesus talking about? The hour of his suffering. And here we hear him declare to the disciples, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Therefore the people stood by and heard it. Instead it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. See, Jesus has already been talking about how his hour, the events that will take place, is about his glory. It's about him glorifying the Father. And thus he prays, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. What a glorious event that we have here before us. Before we move on, I just want two applications. First, by the eye of faith, look at Jesus. See the suffering servant. Perhaps you're thinking of the language so familiar from Isaiah 53. Do you see him in his sufferings as one most glorious? Can you find anyone who would compare to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he not most glorious? Is he not the fair of 10,000 unto you? Oh, that our hearts would ever look with the eye of faith on Jesus. 
and let the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace as we sing from time to time. Look at Jesus in marvel at the paradox of suffering, Christ's suffering being a manifestation of the glory of God. Secondly, it's found in Jesus' very words that we have just read. Again, in verse 25, as we see Christ, Jesus says, He who loves his life will lose it. Would you hold on to your life? Or would you surrender yourself to Christ? He goes on to say, He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him will my Father honor. Are you losing your life for Jesus' sake? That's really what we're called to when we consider the, the responsibilities we have as a redeemed people in sanctification to deny ourselves and to take up our cross daily and follow him. We're, we're manifesting the glory of God at work in us. We're hating our life in this world. Are you following the Lord Jesus Christ and serving him? Oh, that we would have done with lesser things. We are far too easily captured by the cheap thrills of the world around us. And we do so at the peril of our souls. Secondly, we consider the Father's gifts to his Son. This is in the second verse before us. Uh, In Jesus' opening address to the Father, he speaks of resources that the Father has given to him so that he may, in turn, glorify the Father. It is important for us to remember that Jesus is the God-man and that he accomplished his ministry as the second Adam. As Paul wrote of when we were in Romans 5, you will remember that. By the first man, the first man came sin. By the second Adam came life, a life-giving spirit. Remember that Jesus most often referred to himself with the title of Son of Man. This was what he preferred with echoes of the prophecy of Daniel, clearly displaying and declaring that he was that Son of Man that Daniel prophesied of. And as man, here's the Son of God displayed in humility. We find the second person of the Trinity in his humanity, in the work of Redeemer, subjected in submission to the Father. Not as the Son of God, eternal uh, with the Father, same in power, glory, position, tremendous harmony there, but as the second Adam, as the Son of Man, Jesus lived in humility. He obeyed God. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he learned obedience. Jesus was also also given a task to finish what the first Adam failed to do. We conjecture, by good and necessary consequence, that what Christ done, Adam would have done. Had Adam obeyed and persisted in obedience, he had life, he lived in life, he was sinless. Had he uh, sustained that probationary period, he would have secured eternal life for his posterity. But he did not. Jesus has come. And as a second Adam, fully obeyed the Father, doing all that the Father gave him to do, even paying the penalty for our sins to redeem us as a people to God, securing life for us forevermore. And in order for him to do this, it required submission, subjection, suffering, and sacrifice. You remember that Adam was charged to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He was also charged to guard and keep the garden where the Lord had put him. 
but he sinned and he failed. And then there was a curse for his sin that came upon him and all his descendants. And indeed, the ground was cursed. The creation was cursed because of Adam's sin. He brought destruction on all mankind and creation. Jesus, the second Adam, came to recover all that Adam lost. He came to redeem people from Adam's children and to bring them to the Father. He did this then as one of us, fully human, yet without sin. He did this in full reliance upon his Father and full of the Holy Spirit without measure. There is no other like him. Here are the three gifts then that the Father gave to Jesus that he would uh, fulfill and carry out this duty. I'm following Rick Phillips in part here, not quoting, but following his structure and the points that he rightly finds in the text. The first gift then, you see in verse 2, is authority over all flesh. You have given him authority over all flesh. Flesh here is used, has in view, first and foremost, all living creatures. All of those things that have the life of breath within them. But more specifically, it has in view humanity, Adam's descendants. This is a remarkable claim because, as we will see in the next chapter, Jesus will be given over to the authority of the Jews and the Romans. Did he have all authority? Yes. He was not taken he gave himself he laid down his life the father gave him authority to lay down his life and take it up again as jesus so clearly declares jesus had all authority even over the jews and the romans they were acting out of wickedness and malice and hatred for him and yet they were acting according to the will of god to accomplish his purpose to understand this we must note that jesus speaks in the past tense. jesus didn't get the authority after he died, he says, Father, you have given him. It's interesting. He's praying in, the, praying in the third person. But you have given him, your son, all authority over all flesh. This authority is parallel to the authority that was given to Adam in the garden. He had authority over all humanity. All those who would have descended from him, Adam would have been their father the one to be honored and respected and obeyed, the one who would have led them throughout the generations. He is the, uh, the father of us all. But Adam forfeited this authority when he rebelled. And now we find this authority has been given to our covenant head, even the Lord Jesus Christ. He, in Adam's place, and it was the father's to give, and he gave it to his son so that he could fulfill the mission of redeeming a people and bringing them forth to God. The Father gave him all authority. This is the reality that the angels proclaimed to the shepherds in Bethlehem. When they came there, the angels out there with their, their I mean, the shepherds out there with their sheep by night, the angels coming and declared to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. It's not just that a baby was born. It's not just that a baby was born to a virgin, though that is most glorious and, and unique unto him. The angels go on because they say, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. This is what they celebrate. This is what they're proclaiming. A Savior who is Christ, the Anointed One, the Lord, the Lord over all, the one with authority. And then they went on to say, singing as a host, Glory to God in highest, in the highest and on earth, peace to men of goodwill. 
Why? Why could this be true? Why could they make such a pronouncement? Because that babe was none other than the Son of God, God incarnate, coming human flesh to redeem a people unto God, coming with all authority already given to him that he should be our Redeemer. This message makes sense to us when we enlight it, interpret it in the light of the Gospels. Good tidings to all people, a Savior, peace on earth. Only through Christ can men have peace with God. There's no peace apart from Christ. There's no peace to be found between brother and brother and mother and son and husband and wife except through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Prince of Peace. He's the one who brings peace, and he does so by setting us free from sin. All authority has been given unto him. There was a star set in the heavens, and the wise men understood that this birth was most remarkable. And so they brought kingly gifts that were directly tied to Jesus' mission, even a gift they had in view being buried after he was crucified. So it is that you and I should submit to this Adam, for all humanity has been given to Christ. Jesus has all authority over you. Anyone who hears these words, Jesus Christ has all authority over you. There is no exception, no exemptions. This applies to all. J.C. Ryle says, quoting, The keys of heaven are in Christ's hands. The salvation of every soul of mankind is at his disposal. Close quote. It was given to him and to no other. This gift from the Father is universal, but the next gift the Father gave to him is particular. The second gift is that God gave to Christ a particular people. Look again at verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. It's a particular people, those that the Father has given to him. Out of all humanity, the Father has given some, a portion to his Son that he would save. All were destined for destruction. All deserve the wrath and judgment of God and the fires of hell for all eternity. But God gave a particular people to the Son that he should redeem them and give them life. Oh, gracious God. Oh, amazing grace that God in Christ Jesus should appoint a people for salvation. What we have here is the doctrine of a particular atonement as well as election, God choosing, appointing some for salvation, and that Jesus would die for them and pay the penalty for their sins. This is not the first time that John has recorded this doctrine. Again, back to chapter 6, it was such a, a rich and full chapter. Look at John 6, verse 37. All the Father gives me, there it is, will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out, for I have not come down from heaven for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but that the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the, him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Is that not our blessed hope? But at the last day, the great and terrible day of the Lord when he should come, Jesus will raise us up. And then later on, uh, in uh, chapter 6, verse 65, Begin, we read, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to, to him by my Father. Jesus was not sent to earth on a mission 
to die for sinners in hope that some of them might choose him. Oh, the pathetic preaching of those often in the school of Arminius that would declare such a man-centered doctrine. Jesus didn't just come to purchase salvation and hope that sinners would come to him. No, he came particularly for a particular people. God's plan was not a shot and shot in the dark. Left to ourselves, no one, no one would come to Christ. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 3. There is no one who seeks after God. No one. It is but by the effectual call of the Holy Spirit that we come to God in Christ Jesus. What we're reminded of here in Jesus' words is what we, again, by good and necessary consequence, conclude that in eternity past, before God created, there was a council between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some think of it as the Council of Peace. That was my systematic professor referred to it that way. Others referred to it rightly as a covenant of redemption made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in that, the Father elected a particular people in Jesus, and he gave them to his Son. And the Son committed to take on our flesh in the incarnation and to live as a man among men and then to lay down his life to save all those whom the Father gave him. And the Holy Spirit committed to filling the Son in his humanity throughout all his days and that without limit and then to go forth with the gospel message to sinners, regenerating them, renewing their will with the effectual call, giving them faith to embrace Christ as he is offered in the gospel. That's a very brief summary of a great complex thing that took place, a most marvelous reality. The father gave to his son a particular people that they should be saved. The third gift that the father gave to his son was authority to give this eternal life to those people. Look again at verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh, and here it is, that he should give eternal life, and then to the particular, as to many, as you have given him. The Father gave his Son authority to give eternal life that he secured by his death to those to whom and for whom he died. Do you notice in this, there's nothing of man. Nothing of man in all this. This is all of God. God is the one who's acting. God is the one that is redeeming. God is the one that's acting in all of this. God alone is the Savior of sinners. Let us recall again those wonderful words. So well, wrap it up, sum it up. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life, that is the gift to prevail over death and live forever. The sinner can live forever because of Jesus Christ's gift of salvation. Jesus frees sinners from the curse of Adam that Adam brought on mankind and even on creation. Jesus, Jesus, as the second Adam, makes new creatures out of sinners. And ultimately, Jesus will renew all of creation. This is the message that John the Baptist proclaimed. Again, back in John chapter 3, near the end of the chapter, after the exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus, we're told something else John said. John preached, quote, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
it matters. It matters that you should have life in the Son. Because what John says, that is in John the Baptist, wrath, the wrath of God already abides on you because of Adam's sin and then your sins. John, the apostle who wrote this gospel for one purpose, he said these things were written that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the believing you had life in his name. Children, consider this. Children, do you, who do you say that Jesus is? Even as you little ones sit here hearing of Christ week by week, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you see him to be? What does the scriptures declare about him? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Jesus says that no one who comes to him unless the Father draws him is the Father drawing you even now. Do you hear the call and the claims of Christ? And do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved? Well, then come and welcome to Jesus. Find thirdly, what is eternal life? Looking at eternal life. And again, hundreds of sermons could be preached on this, but we want to be brief. Jesus answered the question in verse 3. It's a brief answer. Like I've said, it, it could be unpacked for hours. What is it that Jesus says? He's talked about eternal life. He came to secure eternal life, to give eternal life. And then he says, and this is eternal life. Here, we, here it becomes clear that Jesus knows the church is listening in. It's his intention. It's his purpose for the church to listen in. As he's mentioned eternal life, he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the only place in Scripture where Jesus calls himself Jesus Christ. It's here in his prayer to the Father. He is Jesus who saves his people from their sin. He is the one anointed by God, the Christ. Jesus has mercifully supplied a definition or a description of eternal life. Eternal life is having a right knowledge of the true and living God and of Jesus Christ, God's Son, who was sent into the world to save sinners. So what he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Well, let's just consider that for a little bit. It is to... Eternal life is to rightly know God the Father. It is rightly to know the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not some self-description that you might come up with of who God is. It's so prevalent in our day. People, Many people say they're spiritual. Many people, indeed every person, has a God. But we must have God as revealed in the scripture. We must have a knowledge of him as he has revealed himself to us. And likewise of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must know God through his own holy self-revelation, which the Father is seen in the Son. For he is the full, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus reveals the Father to us. And indeed, this must be more than a head knowledge, an intellectual knowledge, an ivory tower, uh, writing pages upon pages. Satan can do that. He and his demos know who God is, and they tremble. This knowledge that Jesus speaks of lives in the heart, in the soul of man. Every man, woman, boy, and girl 
that believes. And it transforms them, how they think and what they do. It is a knowledge brought then by the work of the Holy Spirit. J.C. Rodigan says, To know God on the one hand, His holiness, His purity, His hatred of sin, and to know Christ on the other hand, His redemption, His mediatorial office, His love to sinners, are the two grand foundations of saving religion. God, as He presents Himself, to know Him as He reveals Himself, this knowledge comes from the Word, and especially through the preaching of the Word. Those people out there in the world do not seek after God, and yet they imagine that they know a God. They must hear the word preached. The word of the scriptures must be opened to them through the faithful preaching of the word with the Holy Spirit's blessing if they would know God. You cannot know God and his Son apart from the word of God and then the working of the Holy Spirit. In our shorter catechism, consider this wrapped up in the answer to what is effectual calling. Effectual calling, this is Catechism 31. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and Christ reveals the Father, that would be included, and the renewing of our wills. He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. That is, the good news proclaimed in the Word of God, not what men imagine it to be. Our, our Shorter Catechism 86 then asks the question, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. It's a gift whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. We must know God as he has revealed himself. A correct knowledge is necessary. It is the foundation for our salvation, just as light was for creation. God began by making light and separating from the darkness, and God begins the work of grace in us by making us to know who he is. We must know the truth. There's no value in believing a God believing in a God who does not exist, a God who is the fabrication or the imagination from the minds of men. That is an idol. And we're commanded to have no other gods before him. We must know the God who has revealed himself in general revelation, the creation that speaks of his attributes, but we must know him as he is specifically revealed in special revelation, the word of God. J.C. Ryle, again, is very helpful. He says, do we know God? And do we know Christ aright? are the two great questions to be considered. God known without Christ is a consuming fire and will fill us with fear only. Christ known without God will not be truly valued. We shall see no meaning in his cross and passion. We clearly, to see clearly at the same time a holy, pure, sin-hating God and a loving, merciful, sin-atoning Christ is the very ABCs of com comfortable religion. In short, it is life eternal to rightly know God and Christ. John Newton put it this way, the one who gave us the timeless hymn, Amazing Grace, he says, to know God without Christ is not to know him savingly. Salvation is to come to God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, to be brought by the working of the Holy Spirit within us, brought by Jesus to the Father, that we would know Father the Father through the Son. 
And in this, the grand exodus is complete. Adam's sin, it was driven out of the garden. The second Adam has come to redeem a people and bring us back to know God, to fellowship, to commune with God, to have the problem of sin removed so that we can approach this holy God clothed in the blood and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we partake of that even now. As the redeemed of the Lord, we know God. It's but a foretaste. Yes, it's like you're looking through a, a, a smudged field mirror or, or glass, but we know God and we shall know him fully when Jesus comes again. So the great question is, do you know God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son, as revealed in the Scriptures? Not following your imaginations. Indeed, then give God the glory. Well, I said we would conclude with salvation is for God's glory. Remember short of Catechism 1, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. When we look at Jesus' opening words in his high priestly prayer, we find that they focus on God's glory. We could ask, what was Jesus' chief end in securing salvation? The glory of God the Father. As man, the second Adam, he glorified God. That was his chief end, particularly and specifically as our Redeemer. The person, the Son of God, had eternal glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But when he took on our human flesh in the incarnation, the glory that he had as the Son of God was veiled by his humanity. The Son of Man was fully God and fully man, yet without sin. And as the second Adam, he did what the first Adam failed to do. Jesus fully obeyed the Father, and he did so, hiding his glory as God hid by his humanity. But now as he goes to the cross, unlike anyone who's ever gone to a cross, as the veil is beginning to be pulled back as he reveals that he was no mere man, but indeed he was the God-man. And that he did so for his glory, for the glory of the Father. The Holy Spirit works in us to bring us to the Son, that he bring us to the Father, that we would all glorify God together. There is no event, no act of obedience, no sacrifice that has ever given such glory to God as what Jesus accomplished outside the sheep gate in Jerusalem as he hung on a Roman cross as a substitute for those particular people that the Father gave to him. In this, he gave God the glory. And so it is that Paul writes, we close with this, Speaking of Christ being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Amen. O oh Lord, our God, we do marvel and wonder at your great power, your great plan. Beyond finding out, your ways are not as our ways are. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than our ways. We see that as we consider Christ the suffering servant. He bore the shame of the cross 
to redeem us to you, Father. Indeed, O God, to you be the glory both now and forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.